Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Karen Clements, the Associate Chief Nurse for Ambulatory and Primary Care Nursing, Emergency and Patient Placement Services, and Care Management and Psychiatric Services for the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health System, or as her staff says it, she is the Associate Chief Nurse for Team Awesome. Despite its rural location, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Hampshire, taking referrals from over 40 other hospitals in New England. It is also a major teaching hospital associated with Dartmouth College's Geisel School of Medicine. Karen is also the president of the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives, one of the sponsors of this podcast. Karen is a nurse executive whose roots are in emergency and trauma nursing. Her career began with an active duty tour in the Army's Nurse Corps. Then she returned home to Bangor, Maine, where she progressed through the nursing ranks to become the chief nursing officer of Acadia Hospital, a 100-bed freestanding psychiatric hospital. After 23 years with the Eastern Maine Healthcare System, she followed professional and personal opportunity to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, where her leadership skills quickly led her to the associate chief nurse position she is in today. In this podcast, we talk about Karen's career leading up to her current position at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, how Dartmouth-Hitchcock is changing to meet the challenges of an evolving health system, and how nursing is playing a role in that transition. We then talk about leadership and Karen's role in the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives and conclude with Karen's recommendations for early careerists. I really enjoyed interviewing Karen. She has had a dynamic career that is a great example for anyone looking to move into healthcare leadership, whether nursing or administrative. I hope you enjoy listening, and if you do, I hope you might leave us good ratings on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you might be accessing the podcast. You can also leave comments for us on Twitter at the handle at HealthLF. That's at H-E-A-L-T-H-L-F. Welcome to The Forge, Karen. Thank you very much, Mark. I'm very happy to be here today. I'm pleased to have a chance to finally interview you since you're the president of the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives, uh, one of the podcast sponsors, and you are also a senior executive here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, so we'll talk about both of those. But first, I, I wanted to start with your background education. You graduated from the University of Maine with a bachelor's degree in nursing. Why did you go to the University of Maine, and why did you choose nursing? Well, my mom was a nurse, and okay. so she was a very large influence in my life, both in nursing and Army Nurse Corps. My mom was also an Army Nurse Corps oh, officer. Okay. So she set the stage very early on what it was like, and she did not want me to be a nurse. Uh, she wanted me to be pre-med. She wanted me to go to medical school. So my very first semester, I was pre-med at UMaine. Okay. But it was very quickly realized in my second semester that I wanted to be a nurse. Still, I didn't really want to be a doctor. I wanted okay. to really care for patients, and I had become 
become a CNA by then, a certified nurse's aide, and was taking care of patients in a nursing home and just really loved it. So the University of Maine is also where I got a scholarship to swim. I was a, a national swimmer. Oh, wow. So All I right. swam for uh, the University of Maine most of my years there until I got injured and went to their nursing program. I was the very first class, 1988, to graduate from the Orono program. So, as you said, your mother was a nurse corps officer, and so when you graduated from from University of Maine, you went into the Army and became a nurse corps officer. Were you a direct admission, or did you do ROTC? I was a direct commission in March of 1988. My mom and my father were both Army nurse corps officers oh, wow. back in the day, and so I had a fairly large influence of military in my family. The funny thing is all the men in my family are Navy, so okay. it makes for a very fun Army-Navy game. <laughs> yes. What kind of nursing did you do and where did you serve when you were I started at the Brook Army Burn Center in San Antonio, Texas, the old Brook Army, and I did a stint with the flight unit there right. um, and got to learn how to jump out of a helicopter and, and awesome. take care of some very significant trauma patients. From there, I actually went to Fort Evans, Massachusetts, okay. you know, ironically back to New England. Yeah. When Desert Storm happened, I was stationed in the emergency department there, and uh, we POR'd most of the reservists from New England to go across the seas. And from there, I went to Nuremberg, Germany to serve in the ICU during that time. So what was it like to make the transition both to your profession as a nurse and into the Army kind of at the same time? I and mean, these are two important professional identities. Mm -hmm. What was that like, and, and um, how did the Army kind of help you make those transitions? The Army had a very structured preceptor shipped during that time. In fact, I went to officer basic course just the same day I took my RN exam, and back then it was paper, pencil, two days. And so the first three months, I was just training to be an officer. And then when I received the word that I'd passed my NCLEX and was a real RN, they stationed you, know, when I got stationed at Fort Evans, I had a preceptor who was going to, who is a senior officer, so she was a first lieutenant, I was a second lieutenant, had been in the Army two years, and so she trained me to be an Army officer at the same time training me to be a nurse. Okay. So I. They have a six-month new grad program when you first come into the service. And so I spent, you know, six months side-by-side side with her learning how to be both an Army officer and a nurse and learned a ton. In the Army, you, you have a lot more responsibility than you do in the civilian world okay. when it comes to patient care and, and, and skills. So I learned a, a significant amount while I was in there. Okay. So more autonomy? At a significant okay. amount of more autonomy. In fact, when I... When I transitioned back to the civilian world, I had to really curb some of that because the rules were different. And so it took a little bit of work on my part to be able to, to go to transition back into civilian nursing. Interesting. Okay. And one more fun tidbit. Yeah. My preceptor at the time, Lieutenant Lori Heels, is also now here at Dartmouth and is has right? been at Dartmouth for almost 25 years. So 25 years to the day when I came to Dartmouth, she reached out to me to be my kind of my buddy here at Dartmouth oh. Hitchcock. So oh, that's nice. it's a very small world. <laughs> Did anything surprise you about kind of uh, about nursing and army nursing in particular? So as you came in, you know, you were making your way, you were kind of learning. Was anything not quite what you expected? Not in a bad way necessarily, just different. Uh, one of the things that I, I guess I'm interested in is, you know, people making transitions into their profession. So I'm just curious if that's a... Well, I don't know anything different. So okay. now that I work in this, I've been in the civilian world many, many years, 
I see the, the orientation programs now, but nursing is very different now than when it was 30 years ago. Okay. So, you know, when, when I became a nurse that many years ago, you, your responsibilities were greater. And, I, and in the military, they were even more. So I didn't know anything different. And as I see the new grads coming in today, we spend a similar amount of time with them, six months, but it's very different. Uh, the technology is different. The computer is here. You know, there's just very different. So I think what I see the most is the technology. Okay. You know, the electronic medical record, the equipment that we use, the needles that we use are okay. far more sophisticated than they were 30 years ago. So you served three years on active duty and then returned to Maine and began a 19-year career at Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor. Yeah, I think give or take some years. I think my military career was 11 years total with oh, reserve okay. duty in there. Um, I celebrated uh, 20 years at Eastern Maine. I grew up through the ranks at Eastern Maine Medical yeah. Center. It was going home. I was uh, was a new grad nurse there before I went in the military and I also was a CNA there. And okay. my mom retired from there. So oh, it was no. really so it's more like than that. going home. It's not just, okay. Where's Bangor for people who are not, uh, I mean, it's in Maine, but yeah. where? Give, give us a sense of where's Bangor, what's that like? Bangor, Maine is right in the center of the state. Uh, people call that northern Maine when it really isn't northern Maine. It's kind of near uh, the middle. It's about an hour from the coast, Bar Harbor. Everybody knows where Bar Harbor uh, Maine is, Arcadia uh, yeah. National Park. It's uh, a crossroads of Canada into New England. We get a lot of business from the Canadian region. We do have electricity. Uh, I get asked that quite a bit. It's quite fun. It's a fairly large. It's 72,000 people in the Twin Cities. Um, Eastern Maine Medical Center is a fairly large facility. It's a level two trauma center that serves uh, two-thirds of the pop of the land of massive Maine, but about a third of the population. And it's a teaching facility as well. It is an academic teaching facility. The programs that they serve are primary care and, I believe, internal medicine. You initially came to Eastern Maine as a med surgeon nurse, and I th this is a, a role I think most most folks kind of have when they think of inpatient nursing. What did you learn during those early years, uh, kind of about your profession, and did you have any mentors who helped you absorb that professional identity? So you already talked to one. Mm -hmm. When I separated from the military, uh, I went back home to get back up on my feet and and took a position as a med search nurse back on my old unit. It was comfortable. It was easy for me to step into that as I uh, had a young child at that time. My mom was the charge nurse of that unit. I worked off shifts from that, um, but really quickly moved into an emergency department position on nights because that's what I did in the military. I was a field trauma nurse, spent most of my career in the ED and ICUs. So grew up there, had a lot of mentors. The one mentor that to this day is, continues to be my mentor is Dr. Eric Steele, and he was a primary care physician, but he was in leadership at Eastern Maine through his 20 years, and then he's in a leadership position in Ohio, I believe. And he was a physician, but a very good mentor, and he was my administrator at the time okay. and helped me grow and, and mentored me throughout. He's the one that chose me to be the nurse manager of the ED back in 1990, and then it grew from there. Great. So. Did you know, when you came back to um, Eastern Maine, did you know, uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this, probably going to do this administration role rather than, say, go further into a more technical clinical career? 
Because nurses kind of have to make that yeah. choice, right? So that's interesting. In the military, I actually had gotten accepted into the nurse anesthesia school uh -huh. when the war happened and, uh, and all orders were canceled. And so I maintained my uh, staff nurse position. And w so at one point I wanted to be a nurse anesthetist. At one point I think I wanted to be a midwife. And then in the military, I was in, the, in a leadership role most all the time. I was in charge of my crew, in charge of my shift, in charge of my unit. And when I went back to Eastern Maine Medical Center, I was quickly recognized to be a charge nurse. I didn't realize that I wanted to be in leadership until I saw that I wanted to see change on my unit. And so I became quickly involved and I became a charge nurse of the emergency department and then was approached by the nurse manager to think about taking the position. So it was really my mentor, Dr. Steele, and my nurse manager who was leaving who, who really steered me toward that track. So I, I really like to make a difference, and to do that sometimes you have to be in charge to be able to make those differences and, so, and to rally the team to help you. So that's when I chose to go and get my MBA instead of a further career in nursing. Right. As you said, you made a fairly quick transition from med surge over to the emergency department uh, where you moved up. From, uh, from being a staff nurse to being the, ultimately being the department head uh, nurse and nurse manager. How big and busy was this ED? The ED at Eastern Maine Medical Center is a 30-something bed. I haven't been there for several years, but 32-bed uh, yeah. emergency department level 2 trauma center. Saw about 45,000 patients a year. Was one of the major referral centers for uh, Eastern and Northern Maine. Okay. So very busy. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about nursing in the emergency department and how this kind of nursing is different than maybe what people think of when they think of, say, a med surge mm -hmm. ward or something like that. Well, emergency department nursing is not structured. There's no appointments. You never know what's going to come through the door. It's fast-paced. You have to be quick on your feet. You have to have significant critical thinking skills. You work very closely with your partners, which are your providers, your physicians. It's very team-oriented, and it's fast. We, we have very short attention spans in the ED okay. um, because our patients turn over very quickly. You, you have to create a relationship with that patient fast uh, in short time to, for period so they trust you. And, and, and most patients are in extremis when they come to the emergency department, so they're in their most acute phase of whatever trauma or disease process they are in. You moved into a manager role during this period where you're, you're not only supervising people, but you're supervising supervisors. So this is a, a kind of pivotal point for a lot of, of managers. They tend to kind of go through some growing pains as they move into this role. In particular, you have to give up maybe some of the things that have made you really successful at that point because now you have to be focused on, on helping other folks be successful. So can you tell me what was different for you uh, becoming a manager versus a first-line supervisor? Well, one of the most difficult things is that I got promoted from within the ranks. So, uh -huh. you know, one day I was a peer, the next day I was their manager. So those were some of the challenges in the beginning is to set the bar, set the expectations, and then hold people to those expectations. And as you transition from a peer to a leader, uh, it, those are challenging times. I kept my technical skills. I still practice to this day, even in my own role now. So that kept me close to the to the staff and, and to the issues at hand and could really partner with them to improve their processes and their care to their patients. So uh, I, I maintain those just because it's one area that 
leadership gets criticized a lot is we're too far away from the action. Okay. So you can't say that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I didn't. Okay. I know the action. Okay. Um, <laughs> Plus, I love it. Yeah. In 2005, you were promoted from being uh, the ED head nurse to the administrator for patient care services. What, what, is, what is that position? What, what, is, what were your responsibilities and kind of how does that fit into the overall operation of the hospital? So as I grew through my nurse manager role, I assume responsibility of the urgent care center and also an orthopedic outpatient appointment area. And then my mentor, Dr. Steele, was being promoted throughout the system. So he encouraged me to go back and get my master's in business, which I did complete during that time. And that was required to step up to the next role as administrator. So the administrator role at Eastern Maine Medical Center was really more of a vice president role. So it was in charge of the service line. So you worked very closely with your nurse manager of the service line and your physician leader of the service line. So I had at that time the emergency department, urgent care center, trauma. I think those were the three I started with. And so I worked very closely with those three, two leaderships, three leadership teams to develop the service line. So in charge of you know hiring, firing, budgeting, strategic planning, volume analysis. I, I was able to build the urgent care center that's located in Bangor, Maine, so I got to do some construction, which I love to do as well. And then just quickly, you know, took on more and more service lines throughout my stay there. How did your leadership style and, and, and how did your leadership develop during this period as you kept taking on more responsibilities? Well, I think sometimes we learn by trial. Uh, you know, I made my mistakes I tell, I mentor my new leaders now and say, it's okay to make a mistake because you learn from that mistake. And, and as long as you own it and you move forward, those are very important lessons. And so Eastern Maine Medical Center is also a union shop for nursing. And okay. so I, uh, I learned a lot about how to be fair. It was very important to me to be honest and fair. Those are some pretty strong ethical beliefs of mine, but also hold people accountable to the care that they're giving patients. So my leadership style changed as I grew and had experiences. I have a very open, collaborative style, although I can be fairly directive at times, depending on what the situation is. And also education. You know, I, I went to, I got to go to the Washington Leadership Academy. Uh, we had our own academy at Eastern Maine Healthcare Systems at that time. So we did a lot of training for leaders, which I was very, you know, lucky to have been be part of. And then I became a member of ACHE and a fellow, and I know we're going to get into some yeah, of those questions. Yeah. I, I, in fact, I wanted to ask you that. So at what point did you make the decision to join ACHE? When I became an administrator, I realized I needed to have a professional leadership organization to belong to. And at the time, a lot of nurses belonged to AONE, which is a fantastic organization for nursing. And I think I wanted to see the bigger picture. I wanted to be, as my role as administrator, I was part of the strategic planning and mission and vision and, and also nursing and practice but it was much larger. And so I happened to be just reading a professional manual, actually, and saw an article of that and reached out and did some research and joined. The CEO of the system, who was new to our system at the time, Michelle Hood, was a fellow. So she encouraged growth in the, uh, in the college. And so okay. I think that's where that led me. And we will talk a little more about that in a minute. But in 2010, you left Eastern Maine Medical Center and went to Acadia Hospital to be the Chief Nursing Officer and Vice President of Nursing and Patient Care Services. Uh, what kind of facility is Acadia, and how is it different from Eastern Maine Medical Center, where you spent the last couple of decades? 
well, it was a very different hospital. So Acadia Hospital is one of the affiliate hospitals of Eastern Maine Healthcare System. So okay. I stayed within the system. I had gotten to the point in my career where I was ready to grow and, and groom, and uh, an opportunity to be the CNO came up. So Acadia is a freestanding, 100-bed psychiatric facility. It's both inpatient and outpatient, both pediatric and adults, and had a very large substance abuse program. So something that I had very little experience in as a nurse, uh, although our emergency department had a behavioral health hallway and did a lot of acute care management, I really, I wasn't a psychiatric nurse. Uh, I, uh, I didn't have my advanced degree in psychiatric nursing, I brought to the table leadership. And at the time, that's what they really needed. They needed a strong nursing leader. Um, And so it was was a, I actually didn't uh, apply for the job at first. I had several people reach out to me and I, I looked into it and I thought, you know, this would be a fantastic opportunity to make a difference. And, And that's very important to me. And in the three and a half years I was there, it was a an amazing journey and a phenomenal experience. What were the key learning experiences that you had while you were there as a leader, um, as a clinician? Well, when I first went to Acadia, it had been under fire for significant injuries to staff and some low morale and high turnover and quality and all those issues. And so I worked very closely with my medical director and my leaders to take some ownership of the hospital and some pride and really turned the hospital around with the team. So when I left, they were a top reformer. It's the only freestanding magnet certified hospital in the world. Um, What does that mean, magnet? So magnet is a nursing excellence kind of label. Um, And so it's, you know, it's based on quality and turnover and all that sort of stuff. So it was, uh, I taught myself how to be a psychiatric nurse. Uh, I had a PhD professor from the University of Maine who mentored me every month because the Joint Commission requires you to have that. If you're not a psych nurse, you're required to have that education. So I learned a whole new skill set on how to take care of acute and chronic mental illness and substance abuse, which is our plaguing our nation. And it's within uh, all of our areas now. And able to lead that team, not just nurses. I worked with social workers and psych techs and physicians and care managers and nursing to really build a team that provided phenomenal care to to mental health. You were coming in kind of as an outsider uh, because you, as you said, you you weren't a psych nurse. How did you overcome kind of the, and people would know that I'm assuming. So how did you overcome that, hey, she's not, you know, she's not one of us? So one of my biggest criticisms is that I wasn't a psych nurse. One of my biggest strengths was that I wasn't a psych nurse. (laughs) So people told that to me frequently. And what I really did is I fell back on the skills that I had learned over the years of being a leader. And a lot of that is managing by walking around. So I round every single day. I get out there. I touch patients every day. I round with staff. I shadowed with psych techs. I shadowed, I served food in the cafeteria. I shadowed a housekeeper just to learn the roles. So a lot about leadership is about relationships. It's about trust. And that's what they needed. They needed someone that they could trust that is visible, that would then make changes, you know, but to make successful changes, there needs to be buy-in. There needs to be, you know, the staff want to change and, and, and for the good. But you have to build as a leader, you have to provide that environment for them to do that. So I just, that's how I led. That's how, and they had never had that kind of leadership before. And so I I still use those tools 
to this day. And you joined a senior staff. Was were were most of the senior staff had they been there a while? So so uh, your counterparts at, mm -hmm. at your level, so the chief medical officer, mm -hmm. um, CEO, had they been there a while, or were you the only were you the only new addition? Or no, they had. They had gotten a new CEO about six months before that, and typically sometimes you'll see the senior staff turnover when you have a new CEO. So okay. I, there, most of the staff were new, okay. uh, the senior staff. The CFO, uh, Marie Suter, was the, the one who'd been there 15 years, so she yeah. was kind of our rock, yeah. but everybody else was new. Okay, and how did you guys, I mean, you, you obviously, as a team, recognized you needed to make some changes. What kind of strategic decision-making did you go through to, to, to make that reset the direction? Well, it's about team building. Six months after I got there, our CEO resigned and we got a, so I, we were all kind of put in more strategic positions to change and make change at the hospital. So we were a fairly strong team and we all knew what our role was and we all supported each other in the changes that we need to make. And we just set the strategic vision and mission, and we actually rewrote our strategic mission and vision for the hospital. And okay. so we had a brand new mission statement, vision statement, and we had buy-in to those. People could see the hospital moving. Um, so it was really a team effort. How did you get buy-in from the staff for your new vision? You know what the most, I think, important is they had to trust senior leadership, and they had lost that. And when they started seeing our quality scores go up, they saw our ability to recruit physicians and our use of locum tenants go down, our ability to provide, uh, we did some major pay restructure, which had not been done for a serious amount of time. And I remember people who worked at McDonald's made more than my techs that took care of the patients oh. side by side. So yeah. I, I made that a pretty strong strategic imperative. And as most of us know, there's not a lot of money in behavioral health, but we did it and we were able to do that. So you have to take those baby steps to, to get that trust from your staff. And when you say you're going to do something, you do it. And if you can't do it, you tell them why and give them that reasoning. And so I think it was really about trust and relationships. You left Acadia in 2013 to come here to Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Dartmouth-Hitchcock is located in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Uh, for listeners outside of New England, uh, where's Lebanon and what, what kind of characterizes the area? Well, the upper, they call it the Upper Valley. So Lebanon, New Hampshire is located right on the border of New Hampshire and Vermont, right center state pretty much. It's uh, fairly remote and rural. Uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock is a very large facility in this remote area. It's the largest employer in I want to say the state, but I can't. Don't quote me. And it has its own zip code, so it's <laughs> it, as you can see, it's a fairly large facility. It's a big facility, yeah. And I hear there's a there's a college in town. Oh, I'm somewhere. sure no one's ever heard of Dartmouth Hitchcock. <laughs> I mean Dartmouth College, Dartmouth College uh, yeah. one of the Ivy League schools. Yeah. So we are yeah. uh, we are affiliated or or have a relationship with Dartmouth College and the Geisel School of Medicine. So yeah. we are a very large academic medical center, and have academia in almost every practice area. So there's a number of there's a number of centers associated with Dartmouth-Hitchcock, uh, Norris Cotton Cancer Center, Children's Hospital at Dartmouth. What are these, and, and are there other major centers that I'm, um, I didn't pick up? Well, those are the more prominent ones. Dartmouth is actually just on its journey to develop service lines. So just okay. in the past month, uh, Dr. Brookmeyer has announced the development of 
a dozen or so service lines. So one of those being primary care. So the primary care service line, there are five campuses to Dartmouth-Hitchcock. There's okay. one located in Manchester, New Hampshire, Nashua, New Hampshire, Concord, New Hampshire, Keene, New Hampshire, and we have affiliations in Montescutney, Vermont, New London, New Hampshire, and Keene as well. So growing our system as well as service lines. The Norris Cotton Cancer Center uh, was developed years and years ago. They had relationships with, uh, we've had relationships with Mayo, Mayo Clinic, and um, Dana-Farber, and the CHAD, the Children's Hospital of Dartmouth, is also very well known throughout the state, and uh, we house the only pediatric intensive care unit for the state here, so it's a fairly large program, and also the cancer program for PEDS. And we were talking before we started recording that you have a relationship with 40 other hospitals uh, in the state that refer here or, or you help refer around the state. How does that operate? So Dartmouth-Hitchcock is the only level one trauma center in the state and mostly the region. The next closest one is the University of Vermont up in Burlington, Vermont. And so we actually have 42 facilities that will refer to us for a, for a higher level of care. So we manage that. We have a very robust transfer center that takes all these calls and connects physicians to physicians to make sure we're accepting the right type of patient to the academic medical center. Um, we have now three affiliate hospitals and growing our affiliation in our system, so Dartmouth-Hitchcock system. So those are sister hospitals, we call them, and we work within our region to make sure we put the right patient in the right bed. You came to Dartmouth as the program director for patient placement services, which is essentially what we were just talking about. What made you decide to make the leap from Acadia and the Eastern Maine healthcare system? Well, Mark, there's always two answers to that question. <laughs> okay. So I had... Uh, I think I know one of them. Uh, you do know one. Uh, you know him well. Um, may have so, been on the show. <laughs> he's been on the show. So I had had 23 phenomenal years at Eastern Maine Healthcare System. My children were grown and off in college and realized that, you know, it was time for me to grow up and leave home again. To be honest with you, I didn't expect to be back in Bangor very long when I left the military. I thought I'd just go back home, get back up on my feet, and go off to warmer climates. I'm really not a winter person. I know, you laugh, because right, I've right, spent Bangor, most of my uh, life Lebanon, in northern yeah. New England. <laughs> um, but I really don't like it. But uh, I had met my now uh, significant other through... ACHE, as you know, and realized, and he's a CEO of one of our f uh, facilities here in the region, and realized that, you know, it's uh, life is short, and it was time for me to spread my wings and go try out something different. And so I reached out to the former CNO here at Dartmouth and uh, applied for the program director, and I have worked in transfer centers before in Eastern Maine, and it was a good fit and came this way. Your role with respect to the system today, is it strictly related, strictly limited to the facility here, or does your role as uh, as the deputy CNO extend to the affiliate hospitals as well? How does that work? So my this is a a, a new structure for us. Mm -hmm. Gay, our chief nurse for the system, has been here about fifteen months and has really reorged with her physician leaders to develop service lines. And so my role as associate chief nurse is actually across the Dartmouth system, 
not the affiliates per se, one of the other CNO, ACNOs uh, is working with integration of affiliates. But my work is across all five campuses and actually beyond. We have uh, clinics in Bennington, Vermont. We have clinics in Plymouth. We have 142 different ambulatory clinics. Wow. So across many, many different sites. And so my role as the nursing leader stretches throughout the state, both from Vermont and New Hampshire. Okay, wow. So let's talk about the structure uh, of nursing here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. You have a chief nursing officer. You have, I called you a deputy, but it's associate. I'm, I, that's the Army. Yeah, it is. It was great. <laughs> but associate chief nurse. So there's more than one person acting in an associate chief nurse role. There's, there's yourself. Is there? There a, are five. Okay. To believe this is a fairly large system, okay. um, and with the development of the twelve service lines, soon to be thirteen. Um, there needed to be some some senior nursing structure to be able to support the work of the physician and administrative leaders. So we're we're really moving forward in a triad model to have a physician leader, a senior nurse leader, an administrator leader, vice president leader to drive those service lines across our system. So, for example, we have surgical services at this campus, but throughout the entire other campus as well, and they're all fairly unique and so some of these service line development is to bring best practice and some consistency of practice across the system. So my role, uh, I have I have uh, many different areas as you know. I have all of ambulatory practices, primary care, emergency department, the clinical decision unit, the behavior health program which is going to be a fairly large service line. Behavior health is both the inpatient units here and across our system with population health. We do a lot of work with population health. Care management is now in my portfolio as we grow care management in the transition of care. Our goal in healthcare is to keep patients out of the hospital, mm -hmm. not in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that work is good transitions of care and management and um, care at home, that kind of thing. Another great cool department that's now growing is called Imagine Care. And that's a fairly new development here at uh, Dartmouth-Hedgecock. We've partnered with Microsoft Okay. And it's a virtual clinic with oh, wow. staffed 24-7 by nurses and health navigators to do a lot of uh, home remote monitoring by Fitbits and scales and glucometers, also data mining. So we're able okay. to, to provide surveillance on some of our sicker patients to be able to interact sooner. So it's, that's kind of a really neat new that's, venture that we're doing. That and then the Connected Care Center as well, which is all of our telemedicine and right. our we, regional transfer work. We walked through that earlier. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I find that fascinating. What is the responsibility of the chief nurse in Dartmouth-Hitchcock system? So we're talking about you. What yeah, is your the chief boss? nursing officer is ultimately responsible for the practice of nursing. Okay. And what does that mean? So... Nursing has a practice. It also has a scope of practice. So each state has a board of nursing that dictates the practice of that nurse. So what can that nurse do? Okay. Um, can they, what meds can they give? What kind of assessments can they do? What kind of discharge training? What, you know, can they intubate? Can they, you know, can they draw from art lines? So there's practice. There's also technical skills that they can do. So the chief nurse is really... Uh, responsible for the safety and practice of nursing throughout all the different specialty areas uh, and inpatient and outpatient. Okay. And I was reading on the nursing pages of the, of, of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock website, there was a page dedicated to the professional practice model. 
and it talked about rule clarity, practitioner, leader, decision maker, scientist, and transfer. Correct. So Dartmouth just revamped its professional practice model. Dartmouth is a magnet facility. We're in our journey. Uh, we've been designated several times. And again, magnet is the Nurse Excellence Award. And that is really about quality, safety, patient engagement, and staff engagement. So the chief nurse is responsible for all four of those areas. And they're all very interconnected to the success of a patient's recovery. And so as we, as professional nurses, we own a lot of that uh, care to the patient. And we make decisions every day based on our assessments. You know, if I assess a patient and find that their, you know, vital signs are out of whack or their, you know, their assessment is off, we make a decision to follow a treatment pathway. We're also teachers. Uh, we teach the patient, we teach the family, we teach each other, we teach medical students, you know, so transfer of knowledge. We're constantly transferring knowledge from, f from about patient care and, um, and engagement sort of things. So the other things, uh, leadership, so we make decisions. We're the leader, uh, whether we're the primary nurse for that patient who's taking the lead of care, we're the voice of the patient. Uh, we're also leaders in our own right. I'm a leader. I lead practice. Um, scientists, so scientists is one people look at like, oh, why are nurses scientists? Well, we're, we're always doing research. Medicine is always doing research, and nurses are an integral part of research. We have a very large nursing research program here, and we're part okay. of large studies across the country. So, you know, doing the research is uh, a lot of people's niche. Yeah. Not a favorite of mine, but yeah. um, I don't Right. Everybody's got their thing. Everybody's right? got their thing. My attention span's not that long. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we, you know, as a nurse, we embody that whole full spectrum. And so, you know, Gay's vision is to elevate the practice of nursing here to be that practice model, is that we are those, you know, characteristics that surround the patient to provide that care to the patient. I also saw something about nursing grand rounds. What are what what is that? Nursing grand rounds are a education session that we hold frequently here. They are uh, certified education opportunities, so nurses are required to get CEUs to maintain their license, and they're they're usually around a topic. Whether okay. we just did one on Imagine Care, you okay. know, so we did uh, we did ambulatory nursing for the future, and so we talked about Imagine Care and connected care and some of the other work we're doing in ambulatory. So it's really taking experts from the field, nurses, and allowing them to present. How are advanced practice nurses used in the facility, and where is their presence especially strong? And how has that changed? By oh, that? yeah. APRNs, uh, in my opinion, are the future of healthcare. We all know that medical school number of students that are applying are down and we need to make sure that everyone's working to the top of their license so you're going to start to see growth of nurse practitioners because they can be independent practitioners of medicine you know of medicine and they uh, in special states they don't need oversight of physicians so you will see APRNs in many different areas here at Dartmouth Hitchcock we have APRNs that sit in a clinical specialist role, and they're the consults to the to the nursing practice to make sure we're doing the best evidence-based practice. You see them in every clinic, every specialty clinics, uh, working along with the providers as a team. So the team uh, will consist of registered nurses, advanced practice nurses, and physicians. And so the patient is actually steered to whoever they need to see based on their complaint that day. If it's a if it's a complaint that it, that can be managed by a registered nurse. 
hypertension clinic, blood pressure, those sort of things, then they see the registered nurse. If they're in critical need and need to be admitted, then they see the provider. So they're a really big part of the team. We see them also uh, in leadership roles. Okay. Uh, and we're, we're, uh, they're a very strong force here. We have an APRN that's just been voted to sit on the board of trustees to speak for the, for the nursing and for the APRNs. So there's gonna be a growing trend and need for, for advanced practice nurses. Back to the structure of the, of the nursing in the facility. Are, are all of the nurses in the facility rolled up? Do they all, do you, do, you, do you all roll up under the chief nursing officer or are they matrixed out and then matrixed out or are, they, or are there nurses who report to a different line of command? Every single direct care nurse or registered nurse and registered nurse have a, a some sort of line to the chief nurse. Okay. So in ambulatory, it's a fairly new structure, so we're still trying to tweak those lines. So they, a lot of them have a, a matrix reporting, so they'll report to myself and to a practice manager who's in charge of the practice. Okay. So that's the business end of the practice. Inpatient nursing have a nurse manager who then report to an ACNU who report to gay. Okay. So there's there has to be some sort of line from that registered nurse up to gay. Okay. So you, you, going back to your own development here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, you weren't in the program director for very long, uh, and you moved up to be the director of the emergency department and patient placement services, something you're kind of familiar with. How are those roles different here than they were when you performed them in Eastern Maine? They're not much different at all. In fact, Dartmouth-Hitchcock is very similar to Eastern Maine Medical Center, just based on its ruralness, the type of medical center. The one thing that Dartmouth has is the huge academia part of it that Eastern Maine didn't have. So the role is very familiar for me, and I actually wrote the role when I came. They were in need of a leader in the ED, and um, I have a lot of experience in that area. And so I wrote the role of Director of Emergency and Patient Placement, which fit very well because... 40% 40% of all hospital admissions come from the ED, and patient placement works on all that. So it right. seemed like a very natural you know, progression to do that role. So not much different. Um, right. Again, had to really learn the academia part. We have an emergency medicine uh, service that has interns and fellows, which I didn't have at Eastern Maine, so that was a new kind of thing I had to work through. But it, leadership is leadership, and it's just really based on the culture here. So it's a different culture here okay. in Dartmouth. After a little more than a year, uh, you were promoted to be the administrative director for ambulatory and physician practice nursing service. Can you describe that role? So when Gay first came here in August of 2014, she spent a lot of time in the ambulatory arena and quickly realized there was no nursing structure or leadership in ambulatory. And so that's what the position, it's an administrative director, which again is kind of like a vice president role, okay. that supervised, put a senior nurse at the table in ambulatory and primary care, which included the ED as well. Okay. So the emergency department is, um, is still outpatient okay. uh, ambulatory. and. So it really, it was a promotion, and again, one of the reasons I chose Dartmouth too is I knew there would be lots of opportunity for growth here, and uh, was very privileged to be asked by Gay to assume that role to start elevating nursing in the ambulatory arena. So this was not a structure that was in place before. Why did why did Gay look at it and say, "This is, we need this"? What was what was the importance? What was the strategic value of doing that? 
So healthcare is, for years has been focused on inpatient arenas, and so the structure for inpatient is very well established. And it's only been over the last four or five years with population health and our Obamacare that we're really looking at the ambulatory arena to lead healthcare. We need to keep patients healthier. We need to do more population health. We need to keep them out of the inpatient arena. So we have grown our ambulatory practices significantly over the last four or five years. Uh, like I mentioned, Dartmouth alone has 142 clinics, not locations, but clinics, um, and and there's nursing in all of that. And so gone are the days where you have your just your physician and your MA. The nursing has assumed a lot of that practice in ambulatory. So, but no structure. There really wasn't any leadership structure in ambulatory. So, hence why Gay uh, formed this role. As a senior executive, you're involved in corporate strategy. How would you define strategy, and can you talk about the strategic planning processes you've been involved in in the past, and how you've seen those processes change and evolve? They certainly have evolved. We can no longer see or strategically plan, I believe, more than three years out. Years ago, you could do five-year plans and ten-year plans, and, and you can't do that anymore. In fact, most strategic plans are three years, or typically three years, 18 months to three years, and they're evolving. So, so we've been through several strategic planning sessions here at Dartmouth as the service lines develop. We just had a full day primary care strategic plan. It's really to look at population health. You gotta look, we're gotta put the patient in the center and what, what does that patient need and how do we get there? But also including staff engagement and physician engagement and also workforce. So. We're now heading into some of the worst retention times uh, or you know, nursing shortage and physician shortage times we've ever seen. And our population is growing. Our baby boomers are hitting our healthcare system. Uh, I heard a statistic the other day, 10,000 people every day turn 65. So the need for healthcare is just gonna explode still for over the next 20 years as the baby boomers uh, use the, the resources in our system. So you have to strategize how do we best surround the care of that patient? Who's the best person to provide that care? So working at the top of their license, you know, is a, is a key conversation now. So you, you have nurses doing things that aren't nursing that can be done maybe by someone at a different level okay. of care. So those are just, as we look at our dwindling resources, our dwindling beds in the nation, our inpatient beds, a lot of hospitals are closing based on financial need, et cetera. Um, population health, uh, New Hampshire is losing its middle class. It's, you know, it's it's a generation that provides more growth to the population. So our pediatric services and our OBGYNs and our delivery services, where should we provide those, you know? so. It's a lot of that kind of thing. Have you seen it done differently in different places? And is there a technique or a model of, of strategic planning that you like? You know, I think it's the culture, depending okay. on what culture you're in. There's also the flavor of the month. You know, what's, sure. the, you know, what's the big hoorah today? Moderators are always good to keep the, the flow going. Somebody who's not attached to whatever, you know, an outside moderator, I believe, is very important to keep the pace going and to keep everybody focused because we all can get very tangential and off and for hours you can do yeah. that. So uh, I think putting goals up there, having a moderator, uh, looking at the big picture, the healthcare picture, uh, having someone who's 
very educated on healthcare politics and economics uh, is important. And nursing tends not to be that way. I've educated myself on that. Not something I'd like to do either, but it's important and we all know. Right. So those things are, I think, critical to strategic planning. A big picture. Where and one you... more thing I'm gonna add yeah. to that. Yeah. You have to have the players at the table. You have to have a, a senior nurse at the table. Nurses can make or break your hospital or your healthcare or your clinic. You have to have a physician at the table who can speak for that part. You know, obviously an administrative person at the table. And a lot of times people will forget that you don't need a physician or you don't need a nurse, but you're gonna make this big strategic plan for the health care of the patient. So I've seen that happen as well. Big picture, where do you see healthcare organizations going in the future? And how is Dartmouth Hitchcock changing to meet those strategic changes that you've been talking about? Well, I think now that we're heading into an election year, we're going to see some changes to Obamacare, but I don't believe that's going to go away. I believe that we're headed in the right direction for population health and maintaining the health of the patient and keeping them out uh, of the facilities. End-of-life care has got to change. We spend way too many health care dollars, and we don't, we don't uh, respect uh, the elderly and, and um, we don't allow them to die here in this country. So I think end-of-life care we have to focus on. We spend a, a significant amount of our health care dollars on that. Primary care and population health, uh, I think substance abuse is a huge, huge issue for our nation, let alone our state. So behavioral health and substance abuse, if we don't get that a handle on that and incorporate that into our population health, then we won't be successful either. So Dartmouth is looking at all of those areas, which is kind of exciting. We are building a hospice. We got a donation, $10 million anonymous donation to build a hospice hospital right on our outer rim. Oh, wow. So we're, we're gonna be able to provide it. There's not an area or a place where people can go for their end of life. And it's very difficult for families. So they get admitted to critical care units and other units where we do things to them that we shouldn't. And so that's great. Uh, Behavioral Health is a huge planning committee to work with population health to work on our substance abuse issues and education uh, in the communities for that. And then the, and the service line development, I think, is going to be important as we look at streamlining our processes and our best practices to make sure we're, we're doing those things things the best quality is important and our affiliations and so affiliating with facilities that can provide a niche so Montescutney is one of our affiliates and they are have a very beautiful rehab unit so we have an inpatient rehab hospital that works with us Cheshire Medical Center is a community hospital and can expand their beds up to a hundred inpatient beds and so as we're full most of the time we can have a, re a release valve and keep some of those lower acuity patients in the outside. And then New London, who's really kind of growing to be like an orthopedic pod. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if that's official, but you know, there's uh, quite a bit of orthopedics going on in New London. So affiliating with niche hospitals that you know can offload some of our specialties, but be good at it, be great at it. Let's, uh, let's transition to talk a bit about leadership. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? My leadership philosophy is making a difference every single day. Okay. Whether that's in the lives of, of patients, it might be a warm blanket for an elderly person, it may be active listening to a staff member who's going through a tough time, but it's really having relationships with my staff and my leaders to be able to give them the tools that they need to do, but it's really about making a difference, keeping myself educated to provide them the tools that they need and the direction that they need, but really to mentor them and to grow them and to make a difference. 
but what would you say are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader, and how do you aspire to those yourself? A, a good leader must walk the talk. They must be a visible leader. They must have active listening skills. Relationships, again, I've said this before, relationships are critical when it comes to leadership and being able to develop those and maintain that trust. Ethics is extremely important to, to be a leader, being open and honest and um, have that kind of value-based system. I think those are, are most of my foundation I try to do. I could always listen better. <laughs> most of us can always listen yeah, better. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, universal one. I try to be better at that. I, I think my team would tell you I'm fairly approachable. You need to be approachable. You need to be humble and remember that we're here for the patient. Can you give me an example of a difficult leadership lesson you had to learn maybe the hard way? So maybe something that didn't go as well as you oh, yeah. as you had hoped and maybe you learned from it Absolutely. To, to change something. You never assume. Don't never ever assume. assume anything. Always, always get the other side of the story because you know there's, there's always another side and the truth yeah. is in the middle. Yeah. That's bit me a couple times. Never use email for any type of critical conversation. We've all made that mistake as well, I think. Just don't ever assume. Okay. There, may be, there may be something else you know, that's going on. Always get the full story before making a decision. Don't knee-jerk. That's something I've had to discipline myself. I am a, a trauma ear and nurse by background, so we move fast and think fast. And so over the last 20 years, I've really stopped and I actually push back from the table and actually think and before reacting. And so those are some of the things I've, I've made m many mistakes on and been called on it before. Can you give me an example uh, of a leadership challenge that you're particularly proud of having met? Being a chief nurse of a psychiatric hospital that I had no idea what I was doing in psychiatric world. Right. I know how to be a good leader, but I certainly did not know how to take care of a psychiatric patient. So I'm very proud of the work that I did at Acadia with my team there. It, was, uh, it brings me back very, make, makes me very proud. What do you look for when you're hiring leaders and, what do you, and evaluating them as well? Some of the same things I've already talked about, being open, honest, walking the talk, being visible, engaged, very engaged with their staff and with me, uh, being open to constructive criticism and feedback and working with that. Um, that's one thing that I've been able to get my whole career as a great mentor who would say, hey, look, you know, this is, you need to, you need to work on your meeting face. You know, you show your emotion throughout this meeting. Everybody knows that you're, you know. Your meeting face, your, I like that. <laughs> your meeting, that's what you used to call it, my meeting face. I'm a very expression, you know, face, uh -huh. and I had to really work on that meeting face. And so being able to take constructive criticism and grow with that, allowing people to fail, it's okay to fall down and scrape your knees, and I let my leaders fall down. Uh, as long as it's not an egregious error, then I let them do that, and, and they'll reach out later on and say, oh, is that one of those learning days today? And I'll be like, yep, it is. So letting them ride their bike and fall off of it every once in a while. And I expect my leaders to mentor, because we all have to be mentoring the next leaders in this healthcare world. So we talked about at least a couple of mentors you've had. How, how is it how important is the mentor relationship since you bring that up? It's critical. Uh, it's critical. Whether you're uh, a direct care nurse or you're in leadership, having a good, strong mentor who allows you to ask stupid questions and fall down and guide you and provide you with, you know, the tools that you need and the education that you need, allow them to watch you 
perform something, you know, so I sit with my new leaders and go through very difficult conversations with them and, and teach them that it's not always about winning, it's about how you get the nurse to grow. Yeah. Um, or the staff member, it's not always nursing. But it's important, those just qualities are so important in having someone that you can go to and ask those questions and have an office where you can go and just vent and be angry for a minute, not not out on display, out on the unit, but you gotta have a safe place where you can go and just blow off steam. That's very important. It's gotta be respectful, obviously, but people know that there's an office you can go to and just lose it, per se. It, it's critical to be successful. I believe I feel that those who don't have great mentors and have been having to struggle, sometimes you lose that emotional intelligence that you really need. Emotional intelligence is critical to being a good leader and being able to engage with other people. What is emotional intelligence for people? Emotional intelligence is all that we've talked about. It's the ability to be engaged and real and, and build those relationships and be part, have empathy all those kind of characteristics that are crucial to being a strong leader. You mentioned you had a, a physician who was kind of your mentor. Was he, uh, was he a supervisor as well? Was he, he was my su- supervisor, he was your supervisor for a period of time. Okay. Yep. Do you think it's important to have mentors outside of the supervisory chain? I mean, clearly a, mentoring is an important function for a supervisor. Do you, do you think it's important to have mentors who are outside of your supervisory chain as well? Absolutely. Having a, a coach or an out, outside you know, view coach who can give you, I encourage my staff to connect with a leader if they're struggling with a communication style or not, and I'm not in every single meeting with these people. I'll say, find someone that you trust in your peer group that can give you a signal or you know, give you some coaching lessons after that meeting of how you presented yourself or how did that go and to get that feedback. Um, I mentor people who live in New York. I, I mentor people back in Bangor and they'll call me and present a difficult situation and they'll ask me what I should do or what I would do. And I would always say, well, what would, what would you do? And talk me through that. And so it, I absolutely agree with the, um, uh, out, of, out of your direct supervisory line mentorship. Does Dartmouth-Hitchcock have a formal mentorship program? We do. We actually send our staff to the Dartmouth TDI Institute eCoach to Coach, which is a in-person and online coach-to-coach program where they pair them up with somebody else outside their venue. It's a fairly cool program. It's about six months. I have two leaders in it right now and two more going. Um, We have outdoor, outside coaches that get assigned to certain level leaders that can actually, um, you know, be outside coaches uh, as if a, if a leader needs one. Gay is actually take Gay Arsino is actually taking the Yale coaching class or whatever that is. So she's going to uh, is always encouraging people to have that coaching ability. Cool. What is organizational culture and why is it important? Uh, you've worked for a number of organizations in progressively higher positions of authority. What aspects of organizational culture are particularly important to you? And how do successful leaders shape organizational culture? That's a tough question. Culture is so non-tangible, right? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's the way the place feels when you walk in. It's the way people greet you in the morning or how the lunch people look behind the lines. It's all that intangible stuff and it's different wherever you go. So Eastern Maine had its own culture. 
Acadia had its own culture. Dartmouth actually has its own culture on each campus. So okay. the Manchester campus has a very different culture than the Concord campus. And then Dartmouth proper, we call it Dartmouth proper, has a very strong physician-centric culture because it's an academic medical center. Sure. And so several years ago when I first came here, it just was starting to make its culture shift to be more of a team culture, not very physician-centric. Every single decision was made surrounding the physician and not the rest of the team. And so you, you, we're still feeling that. Dartmouth, same with Eastern Maine, there's a lot of longevity. Yeah, people who've worked here for 40 years, 30 to 40 years. And so when you get that sort of uh, indoctrinated length of you know tenure for people, that builds a culture, you know, the, the matriarchs and patriarchs of Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So culture is a very interesting thing. It's very important as you try to change the direction. So as we are looking to change our strategic direction, it's like turning the Titanic through sludge because you've got <laughs> to get the culture changed to support that new direction. And so being nimble and quick and, you know, adaptable, they're not always words that are used in a culture. Right. You know, we like to be no change, and, and that's healthcare in general. We don't like to change. Sure. We like to be just the way we are, and that's why we're so behind the rest of the other industries is because we don't like to change. So it's, it's an interesting culture. You can feel it sometimes when you walk in a facility, uh, what the culture is. Whenever I go to a new facility, I always sit in their cafeteria and just listen and see uh -huh. and watch. It's uh -huh. very interesting. You'll get most of the culture from there. Yeah, okay. That's something to write down as, mm -hmm. as a to-do. Mm -hmm. So we talked a bit uh, before we started recording about women in leadership. Can you tell me a little bit of your experience being a woman and being in leadership roles and how you think maybe that's different for you than it would be for a man who might have sat in the same, in the same position? Well, I think historically, women and men are treated differently in leadership. That's well-researched, that's well-documented. I think my track has been a little different because I started in the military, and my husband at the time was, we started at the same time. We were both second lieutenants, but he was given opportunities that were for men to go out in the field and do field things, and so he got promoted first. So I've been been part of that kind of culture since the earlier on in my career. In leadership roles in, in healthcare, women are growing stronger in leadership as uh, uh, healthcare systems are looking to the clinical people to lead facilities. But typically in my career, you know, sometimes I was a nurse and I was a woman, so the opportunities may not have always come my way, but I had a fantastic mentor who was a male and a physician. So I, I, um, I think I got um, special treatment or something, I don't know. But it, I have been uh, the victim of disparity of pay and advancement just based on because I'm a woman and I'm a nurse. Okay. So I think that's changing. A lot of healthcare facilities are selecting clinical people, both nurses and doctors, to lead their facilities. Um, nurses are what eighty percent women, so you know the odds of that happening. I, I think we have a long way to go to get to equality uh, of leadership, whether it's in healthcare or in other industries with with men and women and pay. I hope someday it gets that way. But uh, uh, I've I'm also six foot and I come from a military background, so I probably have a little bit different presentation than some. So that's helped me, I believe, in my career. 
you know, I, I, I've been reading Sheryl Sandberg's book, uh, Lean In, and, uh, and, and, and about 80% of the students in health management and policy, the program that I teach into, are, are young women. So obviously one of, the, one of the issues that Sandberg talks about, though it's not the only one, is this issue of work-life balance. Now, you raised a family, uh, you're married, and you have you know, worked your way up into senior executive positions. How did you make all that work? And what advice would you give to young women who are looking to come into the healthcare field and want to do, have it all like you do? What advice I give to my leaders every day, you, there's no one else that's going to tell you to balance your work life. There's just no one. You have to do that. And what, what made me successful is that I had a strong support system surrounding me to help me with the kids. So when I chose my first leadership position, my son was going into kindergarten. Before that, I worked strictly nights, night shifts, so I could be home during the day, and we took turns, that whole thing. And the only reason I could do that is that my mother-in-law was able to get them off the bus and bring them into town to me if they had a doctor's appointment and that kind of thing. But no one ever told me that you know, no one would ever say, go home, Karen, it's 7 o'clock every single night, you know. So it took me several years to figure that out. So I, part of my mentorship is to, to really instill that work-life balance. But it's about developing a partnership with your partner, whoever that may be. Where are your career paths? Where are your goals? Working toward those goals. Everybody's different. Working with your children. You know, I went back to get my master's when the kids were young, but we would do our homework together at night. So you you have to just use what available time that you have to incorporate whatever you're doing, whether you're going back to school or you're in a new leadership job, is to remember that the work will be there tomorrow morning. Prioritize your work. Life is a gift. Every day is a gift. And don't ever let one day go by without really remembering that. And I say that personally, that you have to prioritize that. There's always going to be days where you're in the office for 13 hours or 14 hours. Okay, Joint Commission shows up at your hospital, guess what? You're going to have a very long day. You have a flood in your OR, you're going to have a very long day. But typically the work that we do as leaders, unless it's direct patient care, you need to be able to prioritize what that work is and get home for dinner. And I stress that. It's dinner time is very important. If I say anything, always have dinner at the table. I always talk about your day with your family. My kids know that. We still sit at the dinner table when they come home. It's very important. But just take that time to make sure you have dinner together. Now, my husband and I have coffee together because we don't sometimes see each other during the week in our roles. <laughs> but we actually have coffee pretty much every morning of the week. So That's nice. As I mentioned at the, at the beginning, not only are you an executive, but you are the president of the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives, the local chapter of the American College of Healthcare Executives, ACHE, that we mentioned earlier. You mentioned you became involved in ACHE early on when you had made the decision that you, you were going to pursue an administrative role. How important do you think professional associations are for executive development? How important is it has ACHE and Northern New England, the Northern New England chapter, been in your career development? Uh, it's critical. Uh, Ten years ago when I decided to join ACHE, I knew I needed education. Just like as a nurse, I went to school for years to become a nurse, and I even to this day have to have ongoing education to, to, to keep my nursing skills up to date and pertinent. 
healthcare leadership is no different. You have to educate yourself. You have to expose yourself to new education. You have to keep yourself up to date on emerging trends in healthcare. And so ACHE does that. It's the professional organization that keeps us up to date in our strategic visions and our education on how to deal with some of that stuff. And the other big piece of ACHE is the networking. So I have colleagues all over the world, really, that I can network with and reach out to to say, hey, I'm dealing with this particular problem. How You've been through that. How can, you, how can I learn from you? When I, uh, when I first joined ACHE, I was one of the very few nurse executives in ACHE, and, and I remember Tom Dolan asking me, you know, to recruit a nurse every year. So he wanted to grow the ranks of nurse executives and physician executives, and so I've done that. So I've actually recruited every year, recruited a nurse to become a fellow, and um, and it's grown in its ranks. And I have, I believe, achieved my milestones because of the education and opportunities and networking and mentoring from the chapter and from the, the ACHE the big ACHE. So, and I also met Peter through ACHE, as sure. most people know. My uh, husband is, um, uh, we met through ACHE as well, so we're one of the ACHE couples that people talk about. But we have very similar goals and, and when it comes to healthcare, and we, it's really kind of fun to go home and have dinner time conversations. I encourage everybody to get involved in your own professional organization, whether it's ACHE or AONE or HFMA or whatever other organization there is. And then I joined the board. Uh, they asked me to join the board back in 08 or 07, I can't even remember. Uh, they wanted, uh, the New England chapter is made up of Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, and I was in Maine at the time, and they need, they need we try to split our board members up to have a couple per state. And I quickly took over the education chair position and was able to plan all the education events and plan the party is what I call it. And It's just, a good party, by the way. It's a great, <laughs> great education. We're really growing. Our education is really fun. And it's fun. And the networking is amazing. When I came to Dartmouth, I had been at Eastern Maine for 23 years. But when I came to Dartmouth, I knew most of the CEOs in the region because of ACHE. And because of our regional meetings, I, I had connections here. I knew the CNOs and I knew most of the CEOs. So it wasn't unfamiliar for me to come to a new role in a new state because of the networking I had done through ACHE. And I can, you know, I just knew them. It was great. And then, and then was asked to be president-elect and president. So uh, here I am. <laughs> and you're actually winding down your... I am. You've, you've been in the position almost three years. Nope, I no, just I have one more year of presidency. Okay, yep. all right. So presidency is two years, and then I'll be past president. Um, okay. I am grooming my replacement for education chair, so okay. very excited about that, to have a, a new person. I've been doing it for eight years, so it's uh, really exciting to do that as I um, will continue to grow in my role through ACHE. I will try to stay connected. I, I um, participate in their mentoring program. I participate in their resume review. I really try to give myself back. I think that's part of being a healthcare leader is giving back. A lot of, uh, we try to encourage the young, the students in my program to join ACHE. Why would it be important? If you're an undergrad, you're 21, 22, just, just getting ready. To, and you want to go in, you know you're going into healthcare administration. Why should you join now rather than waiting to, you know, five, 10 years? Oh gosh, let me list the ways. Exposure, networking, resume review, uh, opportunity, internships, 
education. I mean, there's just so many. You have access to all the resources online. Uh, the website's a very robust website. has uh, online series and education series, uh, job searches, um, resume review. I mean, it's just, it's really powerful tool. In closing, what advice would you have for young people looking to go into either the nursing field or into healthcare administration since you kind of span both of those with your career? Don't be afraid to do something that scares you. Step outside your comfort zone, like I did when I took over a psychiatric hospital. That's yeah. as far outside my comfort zone as I could have gotten. Yeah. Volunteer for everything and anything. Get out there, get exposed, ask to be on committees, be part of your professional organization, be part of volunteer uh, for your local community, be part of some sort of service club, whether it's Rotary or Kiwanis, but be part. That will expose you. If you're going into healthcare, that's what all that means, is taking care of our community and our patients. And how can you lead that if you're not part of it? Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. This has been great. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.